Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the living God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? May the Lord bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And may he write its truths on our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again wanting to learn and to grow at the feet of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We need him and we need your spirit that reveals him to our hearts. God, I pray that you would be with every one of us hearing today your word. I pray you would be with me as I do my best to serve your people whom you love so well. And may in the end of our time together today, we see Jesus in even greater ways. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And we come to, it's, it's actually a just happenstance that we're on beginning Matthew 24, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, on Mother's Day. That's because you moms bring calm to every situation, right? Um, it seems to me that everyone wants to know the future. Everyone has an interest in what's going on, what's going to happen, right? I heard a story once of a pastor. He told about a time that when he was young, back in his seminary days, that he went to uh, New Orleans, down to the French Quarter. Anybody been to New Orleans? I haven't been there. But I hear there's a lot of fortune tellers there, and tarot card readers and such, and they hang out on the streets. And so they, uh, they go, and then they're seeing these uh, fortune tellers standing there or sitting there at their tables on the street and on all these tourists who are coming up eager to f try to find out what their futures hold from these street vendors. And so he tells a story that as seminary students, it didn't take long for he and his buddies that were there with him to, to seize the opportunity for a very different purpose. <coughs> he said we, that they had a very different view of the future that actually people needed to hear. They desperately needed to hear about. And so, so they went and plopped down right beside the, the voodoo queen of New Orleans. <laughs> and they began to tell people the future, free of charge. And they told them, though, that their future didn't look good. But that their future could change based on who Jesus Christ is and, and what he had done for them. And it didn't take long to realize that that's not what people were looking for when they sat down in front of them. Most people were looking for details about their lives, right? Who am I going to marry? Am I going to stay married? Am I going to experience some kind of a tragedy? How successful am I going to be? Am I going to get rich? Am I going to get poor? Most people wanted to talk about some specifics of, of their more immediate future, but they had no interest in talking about their eternal destinies. They, 
didn't want to hear about what mattered most. And missing what matters most is not only a danger to tourists looking for fortune tellers, it's also a reality for us as followers of Christ who know and love God's word. And so as we approach what is one of the most controversial chapters in the New Testament, a chapter where Jesus foretells the future, where he talks of the end of the, of the age, the end of the world, there's danger that we're going to miss truths that affect our eternity because we get caught up in trying to discern minute details that may or may not even be answered in this text. And so Christians do and continue have for years and centuries and continue to study Matthew 24. It's referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is going to give this teaching. And often we look to it as Christians for various details, timing of certain events and such. And solid Bible-believing Christians and really good scholars over the centuries have debated the various details of Matthew 24. And so what I want us to focus on, because we'll be talking about such details, but let's be careful that we don't miss what's most important in this text today and in what's coming in the coming weeks. Because amidst all of the questions that arise, there are some that would be minor and there's others that are major. And here's the major question. Are you ready? Are you ready for whatever may happen in your life this afternoon? Are you ready for whatever may happen in your life this week or next year? Are you prepared for what may happen in the world 10 years from now? And most certainly, are you absolutely certain where your life will be in eternity? There are no more important questions than these. And Jesus' primary goal, I believe, of Matthew 24 isn't to answer every one of our questions in every single detail about the end times, but rather to prepare us for whatever the future may hold. Whether it's this week or this month or this year or the next 10 years or 10 billion years from now. As followers of Christ, we have a sure and steady anchor. An anchor to bank our future on. The context of the first three verses, which today it's going to be an introduction of this Olivet Discourse. We're in the middle still of Holy Week in the Gospel of Matthew here. Jesus on Sunday, we saw, had entered Jerusalem. Remember, riding on the donkey and the people put their clothes and palm branches down. And they welcomed him as a triumphal king. On Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree, representative of what is happening in the midst of, of, of these religious leaders in particular in Israel. He clears the temple of all of the money changers and all of the, the people who were in there defaming and profaning the temple of God. That was on Monday. That's a busy Monday. <laughs> on Tuesday, he confronted the leaders of Israel with teachings, with parables, parables that were pretty cutting, if you might recall. 
Such so that they recognized having heard him like he's talking about us. And they got really mad at him and started planning on how to kill him. And then we spent chapter 23 hearing Jesus condemn the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you. Cursed are you, you hypocrites. We spent several weeks looking at that and The conclusion of that happens at the end of Matthew 23 in verses 34 to 39 where Jesus tells them, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucified, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's offered the curses and he's offered the woes and he's giving them a clear heads up that judgment is around the corner. And then we saw his compassion and mercy in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And so Jesus, who just days before, showing zeal for his father's house, then says something I believe quite profound in verse 38. See, your house Your house is left to you desolate, destroyed, a wasteland. He's making quite a point. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as we look at moving into chapter 24 now, we see in these first three verses three main things that I see in the text that I hope you see as well. We're going to see a misplaced focus, a misunderstood significance, and a momentous question that will lead us into the rest of the chapter as we study it. And so as we come to verse 1, let's look at point number 1, a misplaced focus. Verse 1 says this, and, and chapter divisions in, in verse divisions in the Bible, you hope, hope you realize, they weren't there originally. <laughs> They were placed there for our benefit. It's, all, it's very great. I'm, I'm so thankful you don't have to open your scroll and scroll to Matthew chapter 24. You can just find it but really easy, right? And so it really is a continuation of, of what he was doing in chapter 23. And it says in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And there's really a an emphasis there, a focus on a departure that's happening. Something's happening between Jesus and the temple. Again, this temple, which of he once said, it's my father's house. It's not to be turned into a den of thieves. But he had just told them, I'm leaving it to you. It's yours now. And I'm leaving it to you desolate. And so this picture is of Jesus turning and walking out for the last time. I'm leaving the temple. He left the temple. He was going away, and he leaves. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Mark's, in his account of the same 
story tells us a little bit extra detail. It says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, Jesus had just gone through an extensive teaching, right? It's something, some incredible things that he had said, even some things that possibly had rocked their world. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Leaving this house desolate. We had already seen that according in, to the way that the average Jew would have looked at the Pharisee in the first century. It wasn't looking down on them, much like probably we do today, where we even, if we call someone a Pharisee, that's not a good word, Right? It's like it's the synonymous to a hypocrite, to a, some crazy legalist. They revered these people. Jesus had just castigated them and announced judgment impending upon them. And so here are the disciples. Now, perhaps maybe it was an awkward moment. We don't really know the motive of the disciples. It doesn't tell us, but maybe it was just an awkward thing. Have you ever been in an awkward moment where you don't really know what to say, so you just kind of like, hey, look, <laughs> look at that. Or perhaps it was they actually began to get what he was saying, and there was some excitement building. And they were getting excited about, wait a minute, something's going to happen. And, and again, they thought Jesus was coming as the king right then and there to kick the Romans out. To, to sit on the throne of, of the, the, the physical throne in there in Jerusalem and to, to rule and reign like some military leader that conquers the land. That's what they're expecting in the Messiah. Jesus has a whole different plan, does he? And so Jesus and his disciples, they leave the temple, not only geographically and physically, they leave it symbolically, if you will. They leave it spiritually. The glory of God's presence had departed. And they cross over the Kidron Valley. They climb up the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And there, as they look back over the valley at this magnificent structure, the temple was amazingly massive. This is Herod's temple. This is the second temple. He had built it. I, I, if, I don't have the dimensions exactly right, but it's like four football fields by two football fields. It was massive. The stones of the temple were massive. It took like 10,000 men, a period of, I think, eight to ten years to construct the thing. It was made and carved out of white marble, this marbly stone that had like a mirror type of reflection on it. So when the sun would hit it, it would almost blind the eyes. They said it was a glorious, Josephus talks about the, this gloriously shining light that, that radiated off of the temple. Beautiful architecture, beautiful buildings, massive stones. The stones are, some of them they say were up to 40 feet long. Weighed a thousand or a hundred tons. I think of this, there's this huge dumpster right out the door here. Think of like a stone that large put into place. It's amazing. It was decorated with gold and ornate and just beautiful. And so the disciples happen to reach this peak where they get a really good view of the temple. And perhaps it's shining brilliantly at this time. And they point it out and they're like in awe. That's just Look at that. That is an amazing structure. So they tell Jesus, look, Jesus, look at the temple. It was a misplaced focus. 
Because what they hadn't realized yet, they would realize it eventually, what they hadn't realized yet was the true temple was standing right in front of them. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And God had chosen to dwell among his people. Primarily, we, we know God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, so he has no spatial limitations. But there was a special dwelling with his people that was signified by the temple. But here Jesus having appealed to the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees and the people and having now been rejected by them is pulling out. He leaves. They notice how beautiful it is. They should have noticed how beautiful he was. There was a misplaced focus. Secondly, there's a misunderstood significance. Verse 2, but he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, Luke in his gospel highlights a few extra details in the same account. He says in verse 5 of Luke 21, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the day, days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we read that and we're reading it looking back and seeing what happened, but understand how incredibly mind-blowing this was for these disciples. It, 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 I don't even know if this comes close, but it's almost as if, if, if you know, I was to come up and just say, hey, hey, God told me something, and he told me that in just a little while, Washington, D.C., and all the beautiful monuments there, and the Capitol building, the White House, it's just going to be leveled. There'll be nothing left of this city. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Micah, Jeremiah, prophets of old had certainly dared to make similar predictions of Solomon's temple back in the 6th century B.C. Both of those were actually fulfilled when Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. The new temple was built. The people of God had come back into Israel. They had inhabited Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls and and had been there for several hundred years. And by the time of Jesus, it was generally believed among the Jews that the temple was indestructible. You can't knock this thing down. And actually to speak of such things would be an act of, of, of or even just speaking of them was like an act of insurrection. That's one of the things, charges they're going to bring against Jesus. Also, by the way, one of the charges they bring, brought against Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He spoke ill of the temple. If you say anything bad about the temple, it's like death. It was highly revered. It was considered indestructible. But Jesus wants them to know, you're actually going to see this thing destroyed. Jesus had already said, in this generation, you're going to see something. You're going to see this temple destroyed. That there would be a judgment, and the judgment is coming. It was the theme of the whole last chapter of 23. It's going to carry on even into chapter 24. And that would have blown their minds. Because having been good Jews, they had been brought up with such understandings. Like you, you can't mess with the temple. You can't just destroy the temple. <coughs> Perhaps they were linking some of the 
the things that Jesus was doing and saying to the scribes and Pharisees with this expected fullness of the kingdom that they thought would happen tomorrow. And Jesus had a whole different plan. We understand, and the apostles would understand later in Colossians 2.17 that the things of the Old Testament, even including the temple, Colossians 2.17, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so they're looking at the significance, but they don't understand the depth of the significance of what's happening in front of them as they're looking at the actual temple physical building. But they're talking with the temple, God himself on earth. Christ is the substance. The temple was the shadow. This is why in Matthew 27, when we get to the crucifixion, we see Jesus upon the cross and he says his final words and he declares that it is finished. And in verse 50 of chapter 27, he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The place that had separated the holy of holies, the place that housed the ark, the place where the the offering of the blood of atonement was brought in was ripped in half separated, saying it's no longer needed. We had already seen Jesus in Matthew 12 and talking with the religious leaders again. They were criticizing the disciples who had picked a few pieces of of wheat to eat because they were a little hungry, and it was a Sabbath day. Remember that story? In verse 3 of Matthew 12, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? And he goes on and says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Was the temple significant? Yes, Is the crumbing of Christ much greater of significance? Yes. The temple is not standing there as Jesus' rival or God's rival. It derived all of its glory from God choosing to reveal himself in the temple. And as magnificent as it was, it was far below the divine greatness of Christ himself It was only worthy to be called the footstool of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And if we were to think on any one of God's attributes, which we studied in Sunday school there for several weeks, it would be more and more clear that Christ is greater than the temple. The temple was was but a symbol. Jesus is the substance It was a shadow of of his reality. And even though every, every good Hebrew heart would leap for joy when it thought of the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts, yet this holy and beautiful house was simply a figure of things to come. It was not the very image of the covenantal blessings. It was not essential to the world's well-being. For certainly its disappearance had brought light and life to the Gentiles. It is not needed 
for true religion now. For the time has come when those who worship Yahweh worship not in consecrated shrines and buildings of beauty, but worship Him in spirit and in truth. Charles Spurgeon said these words, Our Lord Jesus is truth and substance. He is essential to our light and life, and could He be taken from us, earth's hope would be quenched forever. Emmanuel, God with us, thou art greater than the temple. And so there was this misunderstood significance, not grasping yet at this time, the disciples, how significant Christ himself standing in front of them was. And so there's this question, point three, a momentous question. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse three, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. And Jesus will answer their question in the rest of chapter 24. But not in a way that they expect him to. If you look at their question, which is multiple questions, right? When are these things going to be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Their question, I believe, it appears the disciples believe that the destruction of the temple and Christ's second coming were to occur simultaneously. They, they believe that the temple is, as, that it was a permanent, and it was as permanent as the world itself. And so if the temple is to be destroyed, then the world itself is to end. Some interpreters have contended that, that the two or the three questions asked in verse 3 have a single focus, and I actually agree with that. They were asking about a time when Jesus would come in judgment to destroy the temple and bring the Jewish age to an end. These interpreters point out that within mainline Jewish writings of this period, that would cover a wide range of styles and genres and political persuasions and theological perspective, there's virtually no evidence of the Jews that were expecting the end of the space-time universe. So when they looked at the end of the world, it wasn't perhaps the way we would look at it. So what then did they believe would happen? I think they believed that the present world order would come to an end. That the world order in which the pagans held power and, and, and Jews, the covenant people of God, the God of creation did not. And so that would come to an end and they would rule and reign with him. And so they're looking for the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. For the story that was told so often throughout Israel's scriptures to reach its point of, of climax. And they asked this question in anticipation of these things. When will you come in your kingdom? When will the evil age that's symbolized by the, the Romans and the, the, the regime of evil that's ruling over us be over and done with? That's what they expected of their Messiah. And Jesus is going to answer their questions. So we'll have to wait for the answer 
for the coming weeks. But I want to speak for a few moments about the interpretive challenges of what we're about to run into in Matthew 24. Sadly, Christians, well, no, Christians disagree often, but sadly, Christians don't often disagree well. <laughs> we're really good at internet fights and Facebook, you know, shaming of different people. And, and I've got a couple Facebook friends I'm just thinking of deleting because they just can't stop fighting over theological issues, and which I don't recommend doing that on Facebook, by the way. If you want to have a discussion, it's best face-to-face. -face. The interpretive challenges of Matthew 24 fall into a few different categories. There's some, and when I talk of these, I'm talking all of these fall within biblical orthodoxy. Okay? Orthodoxy means straight doctrine, right doctrine. Ortho, like you, orthopedic, orthodontist, straighten your teeth out. Orthodoxy is, is, is right doctrine, right teaching, okay? And so there's beliefs that are considered not orthodox, heretical, false. There's beliefs that fall within the uh, theological framework of Christian orthodoxy. So when some interpret this passage, they interpret the passage as all future. Every verse from verse 4 to the end of the chapter is all something that's going to come in the future. Then there's others that actually look at the whole thing as all past. It actually all happened. It's, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem only. Then there's, and that's called the preterist view. R.C. Sproul actually had that view. There's others then that look at this passage and interpret it as both past and future, that part of it, a portion of it, is speaking of what happened in A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, and then there's a larger, or another section of it that speaks of what's happening in the future and the return of Christ. You say, which camp do you fall in, Brian? Today I'm in number three. <laughs> We're talking about eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine or the study of last things. Eschatos is the Greek word that means last. And so as we talk about last things, we're talking about where is it going? What's going to happen at the end? There is a consummation of all things that is clearly in the Scripture. And the truth is some of those things are really, really hard to understand, really hard to grasp, really hard to interpret. And so you have had people over the centuries all throughout redemptive history really solid teachers that end up disagreeing with each other on certain interpretations of, of Matthew 24 and other eschatological views. One of the major separations of eschatological views or school of eschatological views is not only on Matthew 24, it's going to be over Revelation chapter 20, which is in verses 1 through 6 where we see what's commonly known as the millennium. A thousand years, right? It speaks of a thousand years there in Revelations 21 through 6. It, it, it's the reference there to that period of a thousand years during which Satan will be bound, according to Revelation 20. And there are three main schools of thought with variations in each position, and I we probably need a whole class on this to get deep into it, but because every one I could break into different streams that would go and even, even within different schools, there's differences within the different schools of, of interpretation. 
And so you have premillennialism, three schools. Premillennialism, that pretty much speaks to it for itself. It's pre means before, and so that is the belief that Christ's return will precede the millennium. It comes first, and then the millennium. And usually, those who hold a premillennial stance would believe that that thousand years is a literal thousand years where Christ will reign on earth. Premillennialism. There's different parts of that. There's historic premillennialism, and there's dispensational premillennialism. We'll have to teach a class on that someday, but I'm sure more of this will come out in the coming weeks. Then there's a school of called post-millennialism. And post-millennialism believes that Jesus' return will happen after, post, right, the millennium. And along with that understanding is understanding certain scriptures that prophesy certain things about the glory of God spreading throughout the earth and such and the rule and reign of Christ. And, and, and so there's this understanding that the gospel will be successful, will prevail, and will basically, most people will end up becoming Christians and then there's this golden age of the church, if you will, that until for a thousand years, and then Christ returns after that. Then there's a third school of interpretation that is called amillennialism. It puts the word ah in front of it. The ah word means no, which is not necessarily accurate as far as what it means. It's not saying there's no millennium, but an amillennialist would say that the millennium is a reference to the present age. It would see the things that are spoken of in Revelation 20 as, as symbolic, uh, spiritual, if you will, but taken in a literal way. That present age would begin uh, following Christ's resurrection and ascension. And each of these areas are important. They're important because it does affect and, re, and it re certainly relates to how we interpret the Bible. Not all of it, but certain passages, there's going to be disagreements and differences from a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, and an amillennialist. The primary uh, and, uh, school of thought that kind of dominates the evangelical world, at least in the last 100 years, or, or 50 to 100 years or so, is premillennialism. Probably what most of us are familiar with. That's certainly what I grew up in understanding. Um, Historically, it's a fascinating study to look at how these different eschatological views have come and gone up and down throughout history, different times of history. A uh, couple of them have like a postmillennialism, amillennialism. You may even be surprised to hear me say that it's under the branch of Orthodox Christianity because there have been, not recently, but many years ago, there was, there was a lot going on in history where uh, it became kind of common belief that if someone held to an amillennial or a postmillennial view that they were liberal, that they, they, they don't believe in the inspiration authority of Scripture. And the reason that happened is because back in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, there were a lot of people who claimed to be postmillennial or amillennial who would then spiritualize everything and became to, to spiritualize the whole Bible. And so they could speak of, of things like the return of Christ, not in a literal physical sense, but it means something else. And so the issue became a battle. It was a huge battle, and this end times issues were like fought over big time. Dividing lines were drawn, and, 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 and it became uh, 
pretty standard in, in much of the church to see premillennialism was the only belief that actually held to, to, an, to an orthodox view of, of the authority of Scripture. That has certainly faded in the last, I'd say, 50 years, 30 years, 20 years. I'm not sure exactly. Personally, my story, just so you're aware, of eschatological views has shifted over the years as I've studied. Uh, I have struggled with it, quite honestly, because it's really hard to understand. And I always struggled, even in my pastoral ministry, to land hard on a position, to come at it dogmatically, because I, I have so many teachers that I love and have respected over the years that had different views than I had. And I would wrestle with that because I would, I would listen to a teaching and I would, I've grown so much. And then, but I, you know, but, but I didn't agree fully on, on everything. And, and, but then others are saying that they're bad people. I grew up in a, in a very strong premillennial church. And, um, I mean, I know all the charts. I've, I've, I've gone through it. I'm, most of my younger years, even not only as a child but into a, adulthood, were spent in this premillennial school. Um, some of my favorite Bible teachers, like John MacArthur, are premillennial. Over the last... 20 years or so, I have come to a place where I've progressively shifted into an amillennial view. And I will certainly be taking time over the next few weeks to explain that to you. Because of the optimism of postmillennialism and all my friends that are, I'd really like to be postmillennial, <laughs> but I just haven't been able to jump over some hurdles. There's wonderful things about each view, and there's certainly problems with each position that are hard to answer. And even in a church like ours, there's differences of views. As I thought, wrestled with this over the years, and, and even wrestling with how do I, how do you deal with, uh, with this issue when I, when I look at a teacher and I listen to him and I'm so appreciative of him. Do I separate because he doesn't believe in this view or not? And one of my favorite Bible teachers, one of my heroes of the faith is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's, if you haven't read his stuff, just read The Doctor. He's like the last Puritan. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones was so helpful to me in this. And I, he helped me come to the place where I can teach this even from a perspective to say, here's what I believe, and I could be wrong. And I'm okay with that. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. He said, this is him talking about teaching eschatology. My whole endeavor as we consider this great subject is simply to concentrate on those things about which we can be absolutely certain. And I've already mentioned them, he says. There's no question, for example, about the manner in which he'll come. Here the scripture is perfectly plain and explicit so we shall hold on to those things. 
As for the rest, all I shall endeavor to do is put various views before you and ask you to weigh them in the light of the scriptural evidence, asking God to guide you. Indeed, I shall be very pleased if by the end of this series of discourses you feel less certain than you were at the beginning. (laughs) Isn't that a statement? I shall feel I have achieved my object because if there's one subject about which dogmatism should be entirely excluded, it is this. I've known large numbers of people whose spiritual life has become dry and barren simply because fixing the time of our Lord's second coming has become almost an obsession with them. That was so helpful to my heart years ago in in coming to to understand that we can deal with these issues and we can even understand that good Christians can disagree. What do Christians agree on, first and foremost? Here's what every Christian agrees on. Christ will return. He's coming again. His return will be personal, sudden, visible, bodily, or physical, and glorious. We should eagerly long for Christ's return. And we do not know when Christ will return. All Orthodox Christians agree on the final results of Christ's return. And that's true. Once we get there, (laughs) we're all in the same boat. So what is the disagreement over? It's over details of future events. We'll be discussing those details in the coming weeks. But I want to close just with three points of application. How do we walk this out? How do we deal with this? How do you deal with this if you don't agree? What if you say, Brian, I I don't agree. I think you're wrong. Here's how I want to ask you to deal with it. How do we, number one, deal with doctrinal differences in the church? There's a term that was uh, written back in, I think, 2015 by Dr. Al Mohler that I thought was very, very helpful. It's been helpful for me in deciding and looking at issues like this. And see that little QR code that's in your your outline next to application point one, how do we deal with doctrinal differences? If you scan that, there's an article I'd like you to read. It's about what's called theological triage. Uh, Now, if you're in, we've got some nurses in the house, right? So we know what triage is. Triage, I mean, the picture I get of it is, actually the picture I get is is not just an ER, in an ER, Doctors, nurses, they have to do triage, which is they have to look at a situation and decide which gets met first, which is going to be dealt with in a more urgent way, right? So I could come in with a broken pinky, or you could come in with a gunshot wound to your chest. I hope in good triage, they take you in first. (laughs) You've seen it in battle or in movies that depict battle and war where where the medic is running around to different uh, people that are wounded and Sometimes they even, I've seen them, and they, they mark them like, this guy's not going to make it. It's not worth my time. I'm moving on to this one. Or this one's not that bad. This one's about to die. I'm spending my time with this one. And I thought it was an incredibly helpful, not perfect, but a very helpful understanding when it comes to dealing with doctrinal issues that the churches, churches and Christians have differences of, of understanding in. It's very helpful in determining which hills as a church member do you die on. Because there's hills, plenty, plenty of hills. Which ones do you plant your flag on? Which one do you die on? Which one do you lovingly and humbly discuss? And you can look at this and say, well, Brian, doesn't, are you saying doctrine's not that important? Does doctrine matter? You better believe it does. 
every single one matters, and every single one is important. So when we're talking about any type of theological triage, I'm not talking about doctrinal minimalism, because I've, I've seen that out there in the world. I've seen and heard pastors say that, well, doctrine divides, so we should just avoid it all. We don't talk about doctrine, we just talk about Jesus. Well, how do you talk about Jesus without talking about doctrine? <laughs> We shouldn't avoid it, but we should be, and, and we should be careful to be precise in our study of God's word, and we should, we should pursue sound doctrine with all faithfulness. Ultimately, the truth is, doctrinal division cannot be avoided. Believe anything, and you are disbelieving its opposite, and therefore there's a division in, in, in some senses, right, from those who don't share your belief. I've heard some talk about in sin, well, all sins are equal. Ever heard that? Every sin's the same. It's all equal. And there's a point where this is true because all it takes is one little white lie to separate us from a holy God. But I don't think or I don't believe the scriptures condone the, the fact that, that a, a lie is not going to have as severe of consequences as, as a murder or as an adultery. And so in a similar way, are all doctrines equal? A theological triage attempts to try to decipher this question. In 1 Corinthians 13, we see Paul, at least speaking of the characteristics of, that work themselves out in the Christian life, that there is a ranking. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Is faith important? Is hope important? Is love important? What's the most important? Paul tells us, the greatest of these is love. Does that somehow diminish faith? No. Does it diminish hope? No. We actually see Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, a few chapters later, begin to do what could be called a, a sense of theological triage, a ranking, if you will, of doctrines, where he says, for I first delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised in the third day according with the scriptures. What he's saying is this is the number one doctrine for you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. That's of first and primary importance. We see Paul go on in, in his epistles and give freedom for Christians to agree and to disagree on certain topics that at least shows in some level that he understood that some doctrinal disputes matter more than others. That we must guard the unity of the church. While we passionately contend for the faith, according to Jude, it's a faith that we should remember that includes the importance of church unity. And our Lord prayed for unity. His apostles fought and died and pursued such unity. And we must not sacrifice the pursuit of unity for a pursuit of purity when it comes to doctrines that I would consider, or I believe Scripture would consider, third-rank doctrines. In Philippians 3.15, Paul tells the church, let those of us who are mature this way, think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 
Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Historically, theologians, particularly theologians in the Reformed tradition, have often drawn a distinction between essential and non-essential beliefs out of such a concern for the unity of the church. One of the reformers, Francis Turretin, writing in the 17th century, he wrote, about a, he wrote a series of arguments that certain fundamental articles are more important than others. As he put it, some doctrines are, quote, primary and immediate, such as the articles concerning the Trinity, Christ the mediator, justification, etc., while others are secondary and immediate and come into view only as a consequence of these primary doctrines. Well, how do we know? How do we know which errors are severe enough that would require us to separate from other Christians or from even a particular church? Another great reformer, John Calvin, developed an answer to this dilemma when he appealed to a distinction between primary and secondary doctrines in his institutes. He wrote these words, For not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by all men as the proper principles of religion. Such are God is one, Christ is God, and the Son of God. Our salvation rests in God's mercy and the like. Among the churches, there are other articles of doctrine disputed which still do not break the unity of the faith. And so Moeller, in his article, I believe helpfully breaks these apart into first-level theological issues, second-level theological issues, and third-level theological issues. I agree with his contention that first-level theological issues would be the most crucial of doctrines, such as the Trinity, we went over that in Sunday school in the past two weeks. The full deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. That's worth dying on. Justification by faith alone. That's a hill to plant your flag on. The authority of Scripture. We must die on that hill. These are the first order doctrines that, that are the fundamental truths of the Christian faith and that, that would be so much that denial of such doctrines would represent the eventual denial of Christianity. And then there's a second set of other doctrines that distinguish from the first order by set, uh, according to Mortar, he says, set by the fact, Moeller, not Mortar, set by the fact that believing Christians may disagree on the second order issues, though this disagreement will often create significant boundaries between believers. He talks of issues like baptism. That's why you have different denominations. You have Baptists, you have Presbyterians. That becomes a major issue enough to where people say, we I'm a Baptist, I, or I'm a Presbyterian. I have to be this way or that way. It doesn't always divide, but sometimes it does. Uh, issues like uh, uh, charismatic uh, gifts will often separate churches. Continuationists versus cessationists. I'm not saying all the time. I've been able to worship with brothers and sisters at times that were charismatic, and I'm not in that boat, and we found great fellowship. A lot of it was how it was practiced. 
there's other issues that rise, especially in our day and age, that are rising to the issue, the issue of women serving as pastors. That's become a, a very major second-order issue that a lot of churches have been dealing with lately. Southern Baptist Convention has been dealing with that lately in some of the churches. And so how do we view these? And then third-order issues, doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship even within local congregations and According to Moeller, he says this, I would put most of the debates over eschatology, for example, in this category. Christians who affirm the bodily, historical, and victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ may differ over timetable and sequence without rupturing the fellowship of the church. First-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel. Second-ranked doctrines are urgent for the health and the practice of of the local church. Third-ranked doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. And it's sad when we do. So how do we approach it then? Do theological triage? Read that article? And then secondly, practice the mandatory marks of discipleship, which I chose these two as top in dealing with this, love and humility. Love and humility. Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones writing these brilliant words. He said, in standing fast in the faith, if we are not animated by the spirit of love, we may not always differentiate as we should between faith in its essence and certain peculiar interpretations and expositions of our own. Here's a theme which might very easily occupy our minds on many occasions. Lloyd-Jones says, there's nothing so tragic, I sometimes think, in certain circles as the way in which men fail to differentiate between that which is the, of the essence of the faith and certain other matters about which there may be no certainty. You cannot, I'm told, be a member of the World Fundamentalist Association unless you believe in the premillennial return of our Lord. And if you happen to be a post-millenarian, you cannot be a Christian. If you are an amillenarian, you are just unspeakable. <laughs> there you have an illustration of the importance of differentiating between the essence of the faith and the interpretation of a particular matter about which there has always been a difference of opinion. There's the same difference of opinion as to when the rapture of the saints is to take place. Men separate from each other about matters of that nature, when there's no certainty. And where there can be no certainty, though the return of the Lord is certain, who can decide well, who is right? Whether those who hold the premillennial or those who hold the postmillennial view. I could mention great names on both sides, equally experts and the theologians. Surely these are matters where there can be a legitimate difference of opinion. Let us bear in mind the adage, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Stand fast in the faith, yes, but in a spirit of love. We see love as the driver mark of Christianity. And we deal with disagreements with brothers and sisters with love. We're also to deal with it with humility. Augustine, the great church father from way back in 411 A.D., was asked about a theological dispute. And the way he answered the theological 
dispute was to follow the way of Christ. And they said, well, what's the way of Christ? And how we answered this theological dispute, he said, this way is first, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. And however often you should ask me, Augustine says, I would say the same. Not because there's no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we're in the very act of taking pleasure in it. If you should ask, and as often as you should ask about the precepts of the Christian religion, my inclination would be to answer nothing but humility, unless necessity should force me to say something else. And so if this sermon accomplishes anything today, my prayer is that it accomplishes driving home Augustine's point, his warning. We are to be a humble people. It's the first thing. It's the second thing, and it's the third thing. It's all about Jesus. I love to say that over and over again. And because it's all about Jesus, we as his people, driven by love for him and love for others and a deep sense of humility in local churches, I believe, even doctrinal disagreements on this third-ranked level can be a source of unity. You say, how? can be a source of love and humility expressed as true Christian unity is evident. It's like marriage. My wife and I, believe it or not, you might find this very shocking, we disagree sometimes. Surprise. We disagree a lot of times. <laughs> and how we go about walking through that matters. And unity, I believe, is most expressed when I love her, not when she comes to my position, when I'm humble before her, not when I win her over or vice versa. Unity comes when we lock arms and say, let's move forward for the sake of Christ. Lastly, point number three, study of eschatology should bring us to the joy, patience, and holiness of the one whose return we eagerly await. Matthew 24 is showing us Jesus right before the cross. And in this chapter, we're going to see his authority to declare the future, to pronounce judgment. We're going to see the power of Jesus who preserves his people through suffering. And we're going to see the return of Jesus, which is the hopeful longing of every Christian. Titus 2.13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the point, that hopeful longing should lead to hopeful living. Always. When we're studying eschatology, it's so easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Scripture to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, overcomers of the world, overcomers of the devil. The call to remain faithful to him no matter the cost because why? He will make all things right in the end. He will triumph. 
Whatever view you think is best or I think is best reflective of Scripture, it always has to be kept in mind that Scripture always presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation for faithful living. That's what we grasp. John wrote in his letter, Beloved, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John Frame draws our attention to this important point. I love his quote here. It's in your notes. So far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. And if we don't get that out of it, We're missing it. Let me just close with the words of Lloyd-Jones once again. Because as we study over the coming weeks the return of Christ, as we study Matthew 24 and these important issues, listen to Lloyd-Jones. He said, there's a right way and a wrong way to study this great doctrine. And if you want to be sure that you're doing it in the right way, this is an infallible test. If your study humbles you, your study is the right way. If it inflates you or inflames your mind and your passion, you're studying it in the wrong way. If the study of it leads you to go down on your knees in worship and adoration and praise, that's the right way. But if it gives you a sense of self-satisfaction that you have understood it and as it were have encompassed the thing with your own mind, then it is utterly and absolutely wrong. If your study of it makes you realize that the time is short and that you must be up and doing, that you must purify yourself and prepare yourself for it, then you're studying it in the right way. But if it is something purely intellectual and it doesn't affect your spirit and your way of living, then you can be certain that your whole approach is wrong. This is not a subject for the mind only. It's for the whole person. It is the ultimate end of salvation. It is the completion of all that we have hitherto been privileged to consider. And so may God give us grace to approach this glorious truth in that way. Let's be Bereans. Let's dive in. Let's enjoy Christ and treasure him as we study his word. And let's study to show ourselves approved. Let's love one another and display humility even if there's disagreement. All of this to make much of Christ. To live as people ready for his return. To stand in awe and gratefulness of our Savior.